And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, thank you for gathering us here this morning before you, um, and not just before you, but with you. Uh, Jesus, we take great comfort in knowing uh, and being assured that you're with us, and, and we take that in the deepest sense of the word, uh, that you're not merely present, uh, but you're at work. And so, Lord, we, um, we're too hungry, too thirsty to play games. We need you to feed us. We need you to, um, for your <clears throat> spirit to be at work in us. So, Lord, we ask that, uh, that not only would the word be preached, but that the spirit would apply it to our hearts, plant it in us. Um, maybe for the first time, for those coming to faith in Jesus, uh, maybe more deeply for those who are walking with you and have put our faith in you, that we would grow. Uh, Lord, not only for our own benefit, but for your glory and for the good of Santa Fe and even beyond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, <clears throat> Mel Brooks came out with a movie, uh, kind of a farce, as I guess all his movies are, called The History of the World Part One. And yeah, I think there, there actually was a part two. Um, but, you know, in one particularly irreverent scene, he has Moses coming down the mountain, you know, holding uh, three tablets, proclaiming, the Lord God has revealed to me 15 and then he drops a tablet, and then he goes, ten! Ten commandments! Now, of course, the Bible gives us, you know, a different story that, in fact, in Exodus 31, uh, Moses came down from Mount Sinai carrying two tablets with the ten commandments, and we might imagine that had he dropped one of them, you know, we'd have five. Uh, but in fact, what Moses had in his hands were two copies of the ten commandments, this was typical in the ancient Near East. You'd, you'd uh, create the covenant document, and you would make a duplicate. You know, and in this case, one copy to go in the ark, uh, and the other for public display that they should learn, that the people should learn and remember uh, the covenant God had made with them in these Ten Commandments. And historically, we, speak, uh, we still speak, appropriately so, of the Ten Commandments being comprised of two tables. The first table, focusing primarily on our relationship with God. The second table, focusing primarily on our relationship with our neighbors. You know, another way to put it is one has kind of a vertical orientation and the other has a horizontal orientation in terms of how we live our lives. And in fact, Jesus summarizes the law uh, in this way, in, in exactly that way, as having kind of two tables when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is essentially summarizing there the two tables of the law in concentrate, love of God and love of neighbor. Still, you know, we shouldn't think of those, thing, those two tables as being separate, but as inextricably bound together, so that love of neighbor can never be separated from our love for God, and love for God can't be separated from our love for neighbor, which is why I suspect that Jesus says that the second commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself, is like the first, that is to say, bound up in the first. But then, the, you know, but then the question is, which commandments are in which table? 
Well, last week we completed really the first table, the first four commandments uh, with that fourth commandment having to do with the Sabbath day. And today we're turning to the first commandment in the second table of the law. Are you tracking with me? Um, Now, back when we looked at the first commandment, the commandment to love the Lord God alone and have no other gods before him, we made the point that that's not only the first commandment, but it's also the foundational commandment. In other words, it's it's the way into obedience to all the commands. That is to say, you're not really obeying any command. You can't unless you first take up and follow that first command. And at the same time, you can't really break any of the commands without first breaking the first one. So, you know, there's no idolatry. There's no dishonoring of God's name. There's no violation of worship and rest apart from disregarding him as Lord alone, apart from putting some other God before him. The first command is first and it's foundational. And I get into all that because as we come to this fifth command, it functions in a kind of a similar way. As not only the first command of that second table of the law, which has as its primary concern love for neighbors, but also is really the foundational command of the second table of the law. The foundational principle is here that's key to all the things we see here in loving our neighbors. In other words, this command to honor father and mother is foundational to that, even as failure to honor one's father and mother lies at the heart of failing our neighbors and sinning against them. We, we never do any of that apart from doing this first. But, you know, we kind of know this already, I think. We know that the parental relationship is not just the first relationship, it's the foundational relationship. Whatever it may look like, however it may take shape, for good or for ill, that relationship will affect all your other relationships, won't it? It's, it's that relationship that shapes our understanding of what, it, what, you know, it's where we learn what it's like to be cared for or neglected, what, what it is to have someone in authority over us. Uh, it's, it's that relationship where we learn the importance of, of listening, or maybe failing to listen, of receiving and acting on the wisdom of others, or rejecting the wisdom of others, of doing things we don't want to do, or refusing to do the things we don't want to do. Um, and, you know, I'm just scratching the surface, right? Even in the case where there is an utter absence of parental care, that very absence will shape your relationships, right? So the first relationship is fundamental to life, and it carries implications for all of life. And in other words, this command has to do with a lot more than learning to be respectful to your elders, a lot more. And to get a sense of the fullness of what this command means, it's helpful to contemplate, I think first, the meaning of this word honor. The command here is to honor your father and mother. This is, you know, one of those rich Hebrew words which means something like glory or weight, uh, to, 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 give, to, to give proper weight to, to those in authority. John Calvin summed up this command as requiring three things of us, reverence, obedience, and gratitude. And when applied relationally as it is here, you know, in one's relationship to one's parents, to the end that they would be honored, you know, um, Calvin's just reiterating that. You know, they, they ought to be reverenced. 
It's not a word we use much, but it's simply to say that, you know, to be a parent, if nothing else, is a weighty thing. It's weighty. It's a role of tremendous significance. Uh, not only for us personally, but societally, right? And, and that demands tremendous respect. just does. And, and look, in a culture like ours, where words like obedience have practically become a, by, uh, you know, a byword for something like blind obedience, you know, we've got to be a little careful here. Because whether, you know, whether your parenting style looks like a military boot camp or the Wild Kingdom, you know, no parent really um, leaves kids to figure things out on their own, do they? Nobody really does that. In some way or other, all parents are telling their kids what to do and how to think with the hope and expectation that their children will act on that for their own good and their own thriving. So, you know, there, there's an there's a appropriate call to reverence, to honor, to obedience, uh, and also gratitude. Parents are worthy of gratitude. They're worthy of gratitude for that instruction and for the expectation of obedience that comes along with it. You know, to say nothing of the provision and the sacrifice and the bearing in themselves the burdens of life that children will be cared for and protected and supported. You know, Augustine said, you know, if one, one rejects their parents, is there anyone they will spare? And, and here's the thing about gratitude. When you, when you give it, everyone wins. Because the person who deserves gratitude is thanked. And the person doing the thinking is growing in the grace of becoming a thankful person. Everyone wins. Now, you know, it's not a term that's used much anymore, which I think is probably a good thing. But when I was growing up, you had this term uh, of the broken family. Um, and, and that term was used to describe a family that had probably undergone divorce or in which there was only ever one parent. Um, it's an unfortunate term because actually the biblical truth is there's no such thing as an unbroken family, right? Because however intact one's family may be or however particularly healthy one's family may be, all families are comprised of broken people, right? Which raises, you know, a really important question and one that's probably already on your mind as I've kind of gotten into this, which is, you know, are there limits, are there limits to honoring my parents, you know? John, you don't understand. You don't know my parents. What you're calling me to is not only difficult, it feels a little inappropriate given the way they've treated me, right? Well, because God knows we're broken, and he knows that in our brokenness we abuse authority, have a propensity to that. He places actual limits on authority, and those are in play here. Maybe the clearest expression of this in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament, is in Acts 5, where authority is being abused. Governmental authority, in this case, is exerted in such a way that they order the apostles to stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter rises up, speaking on behalf of the apostles, and he says, I'm sorry, we can't do that. We must obey God rather than men. You know, that's a limit on authority, Right? That's a fundamental principle when met with the stark choice of obeying the Lord or obeying another authority. We obey the Lord. Now, it should be noted that coming to that place is, ought not be arrived at too easily. You know, it requires a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment. It requires, 
you know, not confusing my desires, my rights, my will with the Lord's will. And all the same, should a governmental, ecclesial, parental, occupational, or some other kind of authority make demands that puts us in a position of opposing the Lord, we obey the Lord. But, but I also want to say, and you know, we're kind of, man, this is so pertinent. But you know, we are living in the laboratory where we can be, begin to put this into practice. You know, it also needs to be said that there are all kinds of ways we can still give honor, but not obedience. We can express a desire to obey. We can, you know, we can express that desire even as we're unable. We can express regret that we're not able to obey in this case. We can offer God-honoring alternatives to what is being demanded to, of us. We can express regret in our inability to obey in this case. We can endure suffering in our determination to obey the Lord. We can appeal to another, perhaps higher authority, which might remedy the situation we're being put in. Again, and there's, there's many other ways, I'm sure, but they're all pathways to extend honor even as the obedience is withheld, right? And these situations highlight the responsibilities, I think, of those who have authority, of parents and others. We focus mostly on the responsibilities of children towards parents, but parents have responsibilities toward their children, don't they? For them to provide and protect and nurture and love and admonish and discipline gently, never harshly with love. Paul, you know, I'll, I'll refer to this passage a few times in this sermon, but Paul reiterates and kind of opens up the fifth command in Ephesians 6 where he reminds parents of their responsibilities. And, and in particular, he zeroes in on, on fathers as the heads of households not to provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Another important limit on parental authority involves how we relate to our children when they leave our homes. Jesus addresses this in reasserting the command given in Genesis 2, that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That, that leaving isn't abandonment of the parent-child relationship. But it, it, it's a leaving that marks a definitive point in life where the relationship must change as children enter adulthood and especially as they enter into a marriage where a new union is formed. So, so parents shouldn't expect the same obedience from their children in adulthood as when they were children because the old obligations are transformed, loyalties change, so that if, for example, it ever becomes a contest between you know, a husband and a father or a wife and a mother, you know, your husband wins. Your wife wins. You know, because I've left my mother and father and have cleaved to my spouse in a marriage covenant. I think the same principle applies as children enter adulthood because the parenting of their youth was, was for a particular season. It was employed to the effect to, to you know, help them become independent. You know? Um, and that kind of instruction is no longer appropriate in adulthood. And parents have to recognize that change and honor their children in adulthood and in marriage, and especially when and if they become parents, by supporting them, by praying for them, by not meddling in their life or their marriage or their parenting, encouraging them, giving advice when it's sought 
All that's appropriate and healthy and good. So we've been speaking of what makes for health and thriving in these relationships, and in fact, we don't have to work too hard on extrapolating the blessing that comes with obedience to this command, right? Because actually, it's laid out for us. There's, there's not just a command, but this is the first command that comes with a promise attached to it. I don't know if you notice that. Honor your father and mother that what? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Again, Paul kind of uh, riffs on this, uh, expands on it. He picks up on that promise in Ephesians 6, and he puts it this way. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you that you may live long in the land. So what does that mean? Well, for starters, it doesn't just mean that, you know, a long life. It doesn't mean that if you took out the trash and cleaned your room and said, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, you will live well into your 90s. Living long in the land doesn't have to do so much with age as with abundance. An abundant life, a thriving life, a life of blessedness. It's the description of the blessing blessing that comes by way of living life as God meant for us to live it. By putting our faith in him, by trusting him, by honoring him, by obeying him in this way. So Jesus makes a helpful contrast when, you know, when it comes to the abundant life, right? Um, In John 10, he says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. When we apply that here, that's to say that one of the ways life is stolen from us, killed, destroyed, is when we refuse to honor the authority God's placed in our life for our good, for our thriving, for the good of the communities into which he's placed us. Because there's a promise attached to this command, that means that the Lord has built into the command motivation to pursue this way of life in a positive way for for our good, for his glory. He, you know, he didn't have to put it this way. He could have just said, obey your mother and father, or it's curtains. You know, Paul could have said, children, obey your parents, or else. The famous parental instruction could have been attached here, because I said so. But Scripture doesn't put it that way. God doesn't put it that way. Scripture puts the command before us in such a way that we would embrace the way he's designed the world, not just so we won't get cursed or so it won't be curtains for us, but so that obedience would be in the Lord, that we would experience blessing and thriving and living and moving in the world with fullness and joy when we live according to the way he's designed it. Now, most of the focus here has been on the parent-child relationship, but to really understand what this blessing looks like that's on offer here, we have to see that it goes well beyond parents and children. We've talked about this with pretty much all the commands, that there's specific application that comes with the broadest of implications, right? And that's because, you know, the Ten Commandments are more than just rules to follow, they are principles for life. And that means that the principle at work in the parent-child relationship is essentially a template that gets applied to a huge range of relationships that involve authority in our lives. That, you know, that God made a world in which not only structure and order matters, but submission matters. Submission in the home, in society, in life, in education, in relationships, and in recreation To say nothing of our need to submit to things like gravity and math and physics. 
Yeah, I've been watching this Ken Burns documentary on Muhammad Ali, which I would commend to you. It's really, really excellent. And I was reminded, it doesn't come up in the documentary, but I was reminded of the story of him being on an airplane. Maybe you've heard this, and he sits in his seat, and, you know, and he doesn't have his seatbelt on, and the flight attendant comes by and says, sir, you know, could you please put on your seatbelt? And, and he immediately says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And apparently she, you know, quick as a, you know, quickly replied, Superman don't need no airplane. So, you know, Bob Dylan put it well, you got to serve somebody. That's the world we live in. Uh, you got to submit to somebody and something. Um, you know, and you've got to honor the authority God's put in your life. That, that's why you see this specific instruction broadly applied throughout the Bible. It's why in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, there's, there's instructions for servants to obey their earthly masters, which is essentially, in our day, the language would be, you know, employers, submit to your em employees, submit to your employer. You know, be a good employee. You know, um, incidentally, uh, Paul qualifies it there and refers to them as earthly masters. There's a big reminder for everybody there, you've all got a master, and it's the Lord. It's why the... Um, it's applied in other ways as well. Younger men are urged to be subject to their elders. All believers are urged to be subject to governing authorities, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient in every good work, fearing God, honoring the king. It's applied to Christians uh, to obey church leaders and submit to them. Now, you know, as I've studied this this week on more than one occasion, and it just really kind of like came at me in all kinds of ways this week. Uh, I, came, I just came across some of the most horrific stories of power abuse in the church. And I just can't tell you how deeply those things grieve me and break my heart. Um, and I so badly wish they were rarer, you know, or less damaging than they are, but unfortunately they're not. And, you know most grievous is that this stuff is always perpetrated under a veneer of biblical authority. It's almost always carried out in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, usually with the effect of the greatest damage falling on women and children and the poor and the marginalized and the most vulnerable among us. And, you know, to all that, I just say, Jesus, have mercy and come quickly. Uh, but I would just feel irresponsible if I didn't say that people like you, okay, need to keep an eye on people like me who hold these positions, which actually do come with real authority, um, you know, which places, I think, great importance on us being a people of the Word in common subjection to the Lord, lovers of Jesus Christ and His gospel so that everything we do is done in subjection to the Lord, so that you would be very concerned if you began to see in me or, or Greg or any of our elders, you know, an arrogance that, you know, is in contradiction to that. You know, that we would be subject to the Lord and out of, out of loyalty to Him, we'd have a zeal for His glory so that, so that our honor and our obedience and our submission derives from, you know, from our honor and obedience and submission to Him first. 
You know, incidentally, we just hosted our presbytery this last week, which is a kind of a regional gathering of churches, and we carry out real church business at these things, and it's certainly far from perfect, but you know, I do want to tell you, be encouraged, okay? Because we have an ecclesiology which is actually anchored in a deep suspicion of and protection against any one person having too much power. You know, or demanding too much honor, too much obedience. So, you know, that at every turn there are checks on that power so that pastors who serve are as accountable to the Lord are also accountable to you, are accountable to our fellow elders, our presbytery, our general assembly, and, you know, again, have mercy, Jesus help. So again, if ever obeying a leader and obeying the Lord find themselves in conflict, you know, we may have to refuse to speak back, to push back, to speak out, to push back. That's, that's appropriate. After all, you can't get very deep into the prophets without finding out very quickly that they denounced the kings. They denounced the religious leaders. Jesus certainly did that. The book of Proverbs opens with wisdom crying aloud in the streets asking a question. And the question is, how long? How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? (laughs) How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And, you know, I'll take that as a word to me, maybe a word to you. We need wisdom. Uh, In no small part, because even with all the appropriate caution that must be applied when we're called to obey, we don't only have rebellion in our sin nature, we've got it in our culture on overdrive. And yet, you know, these are concepts that not only show up in the Bible, they are commended in the Bible. Um because in their best expressions, they teach us what it looks like to grow in the faith and trust in the Lord for our life and for our good, to submit to him, to obey him, to reverence him, and to allow fruit to be produced from that in our lives. We've been talking a lot about family this morning. One of the phrases that used to be bandied about in Christian circles was the phrase family values. It kind of evoked something like, you know, the traditional nuclear family and the values of that, the mom, the dad, the 2.5 kids, the dog, you know, the white picket fence. But when you look at the Bible, and when you look at Jesus' family values, it's, it's quite a different picture. In Matthew 10, his words are shocking and they're scandalous. He says this, he says, I have come to turn a man against his father. A daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. And, you know, Jesus isn't ad-libbing here. He's accessing scripture. He's quoting from the prophet Micah, a prophet who came to bear witness to a culture in which sin was destroying the people of God, even as, as Micah was looking for the Savior who would deliver them from their sins. And here he is not only expressing God's word, but Jesus is really embodying it. In Mark 3, Jesus' mother and brothers come from Nazareth to bring him home from where he was staying in Capernaum because of his teaching, and because of his behavior. And they were saying, he is out of his mind. So they thought, let's get him home. Back with the nuclear family. Um, let's ensconce him back into that set of relationships where he can take his proper place in the hierarchy of things. But when word of this gets back to Jesus, he asks the question, who are my mothers and my, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around, he said, here, 
Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And look, Jesus loved his mother. <laughs> when he was on the cross, he, his mother was on his heart. He looked at John as he was dying and said, take care of her. And he loved his brothers. He even loved the ones who didn't believe in him. But Jesus didn't come merely to bolster the bonds of the nuclear family. He came to create a whole new kind of family. A family bound together not by their own blood, but by his blood. Jesus doesn't do away with this command. He actually delivers on these commands because in him, the command to honor father and mother is fulfilled. A reality proclaimed in prayer by the Apostle Paul when he prayed to the Father in heaven, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You know, if your faith is in Christ, you've been adopted into his family and you bear a new family name, the name of Christian. And because of Jesus, the whole family, the church of Christ, takes the name of God to itself because we've been united to his son by faith. And in Jesus Christ, we're not given orders, we're given actually something much better, perfect obedience. Because he has honored the Father. And because of that, we're given a whole new ability and freedom to honor authority because of his obedience, we're able to obey. Because of his submission, we're able to submit because he has already taken the low place for us. We can too and come into the promise he assures us of that we will come into possession of the promise in this command that we'll have life and life abundant. And you know what else we'll find? That embracing the gospel honor actually becomes expansive. It gets distributed. In Galatians 5, Paul describes the effect of this as a life of freedom, reminding us that we were called to be free. Only don't use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Everyone. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. For that reason, we are to bear another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's funny to find a reference to law there at the end, isn't it? I mean, we, we rightly call these Ten Commandments commands. They are that, but that's not all they are. I think they're also invitations. Invita invitations to enter into and enjoy blessedness, a blessedness Jesus secures for us because, in fact, he is the only obedient one. He's the only one who truly honored his father and submitted and obeyed. He has secured the promise of the command, not just for himself, but for us, that we would receive abundant eternal life so that whatever years he may give us in this life, we grow in him by a way of reverent, thankful, beautiful obedience. Paul calls it there the law of Christ, um, which isn't another law. It is God's law, including the Ten Commandments, transformed by Christ, who neither obliterated it as irrelevant nor obliterates us as disobedient, but instead takes it up and obeys it all. And that becomes ours. Out of love for us to secure for us this promise of life, so don't just look to the commands. Look through them uh, to see the beauty and the fullness of Jesus who submitted to the Father for us, who gave up power, who gave up authority, who gave up honor, 
for us and for our salvation to the end that he transformed all the authority structures, freeing us to live a whole new kind of submission motivated out of our reverence for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for this call. Uh, Lord, you know uh, the depths of our rebellion. You know our grumbling. You know our arrogance. You know how readily we snap into a mode of life in which um, we assert kind of our own lordship. And, uh, and in the very same breath, you know, um, lash out at any authority uh, that you have put in our lives for our good, you know, as something of a threat. And so, Lord, we've spoken a lot about how we need wisdom in navigating these things, but I am confident we all need to grow. And I also know you know exactly how we need to grow. And you give us exactly what we need to grow. But Lord, even before we get to the question of growth, we just praise you for Jesus, for his beauty, for his obedience, for um, attaining for us not only the forgiveness of our sins, for taking on the wrath that should have fallen on us for our disobedience, but giving us a full salvation in which he, you confer upon us, Lord Jesus, obedience itself where we can, we can boldly go before the Father as those who are wrapped in Christ, as those who bear the name of Jesus upon our own lives, and we can stand before you, um, not cowering, uh, but coming as children, as those uh, fully pleasing because of the fully pleasing work of Jesus. And, you know, all that comes home to roost every week here at this table. Um, you know, we ought to be struck, um, maybe more than we are, by the reality of this table because all logic, our own lives, everything, you know, um, says it ought to be something different. Uh, but you surprised us with grace. Uh, you've given us a table in which we don't come cowering, we don't come making... Uh, you know, bringing offerings. We don't come making even resolutions to be better. We come just to be fed uh, by you, Lord Jesus, um, because we are hungry and we're thirsty and we're your children, and this is the family table. Uh, so we're glad to gather around it. We're glad to eat. Uh, we're glad, Jesus, that you're present and at work. There is real grace here uh, that you... Uh, impute upon us, you know, we're standing kind of on holy ground. So we pray that you would feed us, um, feed us certainly with this food, but in, in eating, uh, Lord, would we um, receive in a fresh way uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, that ours would be a beautiful submission, a beautiful obedience, that we would be eager to distribute honor and not merely demand it. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.